Hello, everyone, and welcome to the State of Sport Management, a podcast with Dr. Matthew Hummel coming from the University of Cincinnati in Cincinnati, Ohio. Here's this week's episode. All right, welcome everybody back here to another episode of State of Sport Management. As maybe you've heard in the last couple of recordings I did that these have been coming fast and furious. I'm doing quite a few recordings here in this mid to late November to now early December, even though these will probably get rolled out throughout the spring semester. So if we are ever complaining about the cold weather and you're wondering why, because it's warming up where you're at, just kind of keep that in mind. Recording this today on a December 11th, 2020, but I wanted to bring in someone that I really respect a lot as a researcher. She does a lot of great stuff out there. If you ever check out her Google Scholar page, she is definitely one of the superstars in our field. But today we're going to be joined by Nicole Melton. Nicole is at University of Massachusetts. She is the Associate Department Chair and Associate Professor in their Sport Management Program within the Eisenberg School of Management. So Nicole, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thanks, Matt. Thanks for that introduction. Don't know if I warrant it, but thank you. <laughs> <laughs> no, absolutely. You deserve that. But today we're going to talk about a topic that I think is really important. It's coming up more and more. Um, I guess Nicole and I are both former Red Raiders, which, uh, unfortunately, I, yeah, <laughs> get the guns up there, which I got to tell a story because Nicole just said that. I just accepted the job at Texas Tech. I'd been there, what, a year? And they do this thing where they do like guns up with your finger and they'll say wreck them or guns up. And we're at NASM in Denver and I'm like staying not at the conference hotel. I'm just renting like an Airbnb house. And so I'm walking to the conference and I'm just walking on a sidewalk and this guy just with extreme loudness, right as I'm walking by, gives me guns up as loud as he possibly can. It scared the bejesus out of me. I probably had never and before then been introduced that way because I feel like when you're on college campus it's not something you do because everyone there is Texas Tech so you're thinking that only people away and this guy just scared the crap out of me I was terrified you gotta you gotta love that Texas Tech spirit and that uh the pride of the students <laughs> and, and alum yeah for sure it was just I just remember joking uh, about like man you couldn't do that in some places without people feeling like you're being assaulted when they say guns up as loud as possible. <laughs> it can take different connotations in different settings. Yes, exactly. So, okay, not to get us right off tangent, but um, I feel like a lot of sport management departments in just expanding this out to higher ed itself is talking a lot more about having professors do research with undergrad and master's students. It goes without saying lots of professors do research with doctoral students. And a lot of times that's just part of the plan is that you're going to join along or lead your own project and your advisor or your fellow faculty are going to help with that project. But it doesn't happen as much with master's and undergrad students. We're going to kind of potentially get into some of those challenges and reasons why, as many of you can probably already assume. But I know at my previous stops at Texas Tech, it was becoming a conversation point of doing more research with undergrad and grad students. It's been discussed either broadly here at University of Cincinnati. I've even heard discussions at University of Louisville. You also see conferences that are very student-led. So there's a lot of motivation, especially for administration, to push or motivate their faculty to start doing research with undergrad and grad students. So asking around, I found out Nicole is one of our best faculty, I'd say probably in our field, that's doing research undergrad and master's students. So I thought she'd be the best person to bring in and talk about this. And so kind of leading with all that in, 
Dr. Melton, like, let's talk about how, how do you start this process? How do you connect with students doing research, at least from my undergrad students or master's students? Sure. So I will, you know, first off, just agree that I do think it's something that we're talking about at a university level now is engaging students at particularly the undergrad and the master's level in these, in these processes, um, either through an independent study, through working on a project with a faculty member, or through maybe their honors thesis or something like that. Um, as far as how, and I've probably done it the right way and the wrong way and everywhere in between over the past, you know, nine years and the various places that I've been. Um, but I will say, particularly for me in the past few years, what's been successful is that I talk a lot more about research in the classroom. So when we're teaching classes, you know, I'll have certain lectures where we might go through, um, Sally Shaw and Wendy Frisbee's doing gender type of research and how you disrupt discourses so students understand that and we take some time to really go through that. Um, or a variety. I'll just make sure that I spend some dedicated time to, you know, rather than just reading a textbook or listening to a lecture where we say, this is what we see, actually showing them the research that was done so that we can draw those conclusions. Um, and I did not think that students were interested in research at all, I like to hear it. I thought they just, you know, we, we work in a very practical field. So I thought they wanted more like Harvard business case study type stuff or what we would see in popular press. Um, and so, and granted, they still want that, but they also have this, I've noticed that they have a, a real interest in the research that's been done and particularly what our faculty within our um, department are doing as well. And so just that, just talking about it more, has, has allowed for more students to have exposure to it and then they come ask us questions about it and ask for opportunities to be engaged. Interesting. And so do you feel like there's certain classes maybe that lean to that or make it easier to connect with students on potential research or do you think that it's been successful across any undergrad class or master's class that you're teaching? I honestly think so. I teach a variety of things. I've taught, you know, I mean, being at Texas Tech, and then I was at a Seattle U, which is a teaching school. I think I've taught like 18 different classes, maybe now. Um, wow. but not maybe not that many, but a lot. A lot. <laughs> um, and so I would say, you know, in your leadership class, it's definitely in there. I teach a diversity and inclusion class, marketing type classes. Um, you can have it in there. I know at Texas Tech, I taught the research methods class. So in teaching them research methods, I would kind of break down a certain study each week just so that we could see like, okay, we talked about this this week. This is how this person showed this in their study type of thing, um, just to give them more exposure that way. I know um, this is not my area at all, but I know in some of our econ classes, sport econ and sport finance, they will look at articles and see what's been doing and that will spur interest in students as well to do more research. Nice, I think those are great examples. When you're thinking of the students in those classes, when you're doing these projects or at least starting that, do they often present the idea? Is this something that you present an idea to them? Like how does that essentially that initial part start? So generally, and we'll probably talk more about this on like how you start those projects and how you organize them. Um, I will, students will say that they have an interest in it. And so I typically will go through the different projects that we're working on, not just me, but other faculty members, because it's not, it's, they might have just this very narrow interest in what I'm doing, but it might be more that there's stuff that 
Dr. Katz is doing or Dr. Walker's doing that might align more with their interests and to see where there might be opportunities for them to, to join projects, right? So it's more, what's your general topic of interest? And then do we want to have projects in that area that you could assist with in some way? Um, versus if it's a independent study or an honors thesis, then it's really them um, coming up with the idea through your guidance. So they say, this is my general idea. And then we have probably like a solid, at least three weeks of just talking through like what is going to be the idea that we're gonna follow through on to get more um, like to do a lit review or something like that for an independent study or a, a thesis project. Yeah, and I think I'm obviously I'm trying to think back of imagining me in undergrad, which boy, I really would avoid that person as a research partner. But then even me as a master's student, I think it would be that three week period is important to me because I think it would be really hard for me to actually craft a problem that is what I, this isn't a word, but researchable because I think my problems would be focus a lot on things maybe I'm reading at the moment um, right. and are really just more subjective and not really bound by something that you'd go and collect data on. I mean, is that something you feel like you notice working with undergrad and master's students? Yeah. And I do think that, you know, I, th I was actually going to talk about that. Like I cannot really remember my undergrad self or my master's level self. I can hardly remember my PhD self. <laughs> Block um, <goes> up. <laughs> and, and we forget a lot, I think, in our PhD of, that we were sitting around everybody that was, that was wrestling with the same things we were wrestling with and trying to learn this process. We were sitting with our advisors learning this process. And, and through all of that, we gained the knowledge that we needed to create these actionable research ideas. Our undergrads and our master's students do not have that luxury. They're sitting around in a class talking about how to do a marketing plan. They're sure. not, you know, talking about construct validity. And so um, to make sure that, number one, you know, that they have the time to, and you have the time to understand what are their interests and where can you align them with something that they can, they can get something done in whatever your time frame is. Sometimes that's a semester, sometimes that's a year, sometimes that's two years, right? But I think it's really on the, the advisor, the professor to say like, okay, this is your interest. Maybe you have this huge grand idea, but in our time frame, let's look at this one little nugget that's going to help us, right? To get you something out of this that you're going to, you know, be proud of at the end of the semester, at the end of the year, um, and it's going to move you towards where you want it to go. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a lot of like thinking back to as a student of think that you know nothing, right? That you have not, this is a whole new language that they have to learn. So how can you scope that to where they can get something that they actually enjoy? Yeah, I'm, we had some culminating project when I was an undergrad student. I remember I wrote a paper on the problematic reality of having Native American mascots within college athletics. And it really was just more of a, a very bad review paper. I was really taking lots of pieces that the people wrote and kind of just writing it really more into my own voice. I'd be terrified to look at that. I really don't want to. Uh, but I also can't imagine thinking then like, okay, let's actually collect data and do an empirical study that that yeah, would be mm -hmm. a steep, steep learning curve. And I can't imagine you trying to teach me about instrument development and, uh, and explaining what validity and reliability is. That would probably would have blown my brain. So I... <laughs> Yeah, and I would say that, that that process that you went through, giving, you know, giving yourself ownership to look at a topic that was really of interest to you, taking the time to write that, you know, 
maybe it's not going to result in a publication or even a presentation, but it, it set, you know, planted the seed that maybe you were thinking about grad school after that, or you had some idea, right? And I think a lot of times that's um, our only goal, right? That you're trying to create knowledge, you're trying to understand a certain topic, and, and maybe that's going to encourage you to then pursue this more in a more advanced degree later on. Yeah, and, and I do think it is important for the student to have I think you called it ownership in a topic or a topic that's interesting to me because to me that topic was interesting. The Native American mascots for college athletics is sadly, I'm a University of Illinois fan. I don't mean that because of their association necessarily with the Illini, but that their sports, especially the ones on TV are often poor, but mm -hmm. it really made me conflicted on how to feel as a fan because I grew up around them having this Native American mascot, but I also am reading lots of stuff about how Native Americans are viewing that as really distasteful or potentially demeaning to their, to them as a culture. And so I was, for me, it was a great like feeling out project, but if you would have gave me some random marketing project for something that I d wouldn't have been interested in, it definitely would have felt like more of like I was slugging through mm -hmm. kind of doing something because it felt like a more of a class project than something I was actually interested in. Right. So when you talk, you mentioned this a little bit, but I think it's important to talk about when a student, when you're actually starting the process, so you're doing a research project with a student, you've decided to move forward. Do you set goals ahead of time, like publication presentation? Is that something you kind of let organically happen? Like what's, how do you handle that? Sure. So, and this might be an unpopular opinion for tenure review, but, <laughs> um, and, and, and everything, everything, starts with the goal of the student and the goal is to learn i think so the whole project is to be the whole reason that you're doing this is to enhance their learning and to enhance their experience while at your institution and so that's where i look at it so um and given you know what you can do and the time and the scope that you can actually accomplish publication is very far from what I'm thinking about at that time, if, if it's their project that they're, you know, starting with, it's not that there's something they're coming on and helping with, right? Or it's a larger project. But if it's, you know, an independent study, maybe, maybe down the road, it might turn into a publication, right? But at this point, I think it's just learning and the experience is what your goal should be. Um, and what they want to get out of it. So it really depends on the student. If the student comes to you and they say, I know I want to go to grad school. And I know that my resume is going to look better if I have a publication or a presentation on that, then the conversation is different, right? Versus if it's a student who just says, I'm really interested in this and I think this would be a great use of my three-hour independent study um, elective, right? Um, and so that's generally, I start with, again, in assessing just the student interest in research topic, assessing their interest of where they want to go with this. Because um, not every student wants to present and I wouldn't want to put too much on the student to where they feel overwhelmed and then they shut down. Yeah, I think that's great. I mean, it's, I could see some students feeling overwhelmed about, Hey, let's go present this in front of a bunch of people you don't know. And you may not have had a lot of experience out. It can be a great experience if they're willing to, but I can definitely see of like, Oh man, I, I don't want to do that. Yeah. And I have some students that I'm amazed by their confidence. Like we want to get the word out. We want to present. And, um, so yeah, that's great and foster that, especially if you know the student or the institution has funding also to help them present. I mean, right now it's great because we have so many free conferences. So it's kind of opened those opportunities with the virtual conferences. Um, I will say we do provide 
a safe space for them to present at the end of the year. So all of our students who have done independent studies or have done um, their honors thesis, they're able to present just within our department, which is kind of a fun culmination of the year. Oh yeah, for sure. And you bring up a good point with the free conferences that does provide maybe a little bit of financial flexibility on that. And I think we're all getting, as we're doing this over Zoom, that this becomes a little bit more of a, a experience platform. I do remember my first, even as a doc student presenting at like a NASM or whatever, man, feeling overwhelmed, especially if you're talking about someone's citation, they're in the room. It's like, oh man, if they raise their hand and say, this is totally wrong, I'm just going to walk off. <laughs> yeah, I know. My, my, I had this eight o'clock presentation, my first NASM, and I was like, nobody's going to show up. This is my first independently <laughs> led, you know, I was, so, I was the lead author on it. And Joy DeCincy and Janet Finker in the front row, and I was like, let me die now, please. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, I know the exact thing. I just always would be terrified. They'd be like, you've misconstrued my study. I'd be like, I apologize to everyone for everything I've ever done. <laughs> oh, gosh. So um, how do you administer working through this? So the student has an idea. They're starting to go forward. Even if they are doing a publication or presentation or not, like how do you keep tabs of their pro uh, progress? How often you keep checking in? Like how do you handle that itself? Sure. So um, again, it's going to depend on that student. Like, you know, if you have a student that's pretty autonomous and, and you trust and you've known. So for instance, if you kind of knew them as a first year student and now they're entering their senior year and you can give them more leeway than you might, other students you might not know as well or that just need more guidance. So it depends, but I, I, I do think that, and this is just me and I'm not saying this is the best strategy. Sometimes I hate the strategy, but I usually do weekly meetings with students so that we can check in on progress and then at least gives me and them that space where if they have any questions or they're feeling confused that we can check in and not let them build. So if we only had monthly meetings, for instance, or every other week to where they might get stuck on one issue and not move on. So if we had just the once a week, then we can usually move on from those things. Um, so that's generally how I structure it to where we're gonna meet once a week, um, and go over, we have kind of, we set it at the beginning, this is our timeline, and so this is kind of the check marks we should be working towards. Gotcha, okay, the timelines are a good idea. And that leads to, you talk about being stuck, how do you decide or feel out when it's time to critique, when it's time to support, like when it's time to provide them with some type of reinforcement? Sure, so I have this, I say feedback is not failure. And that is a key thing that I think everyone should believe. I also tell them, you know, in my field, in our field, we are in the business of receiving feedback and generally critical feedback. You know, in our student teaching evaluations, we get feedback. In our review process, we get feedback. Um, we're just constantly giving and receiving feedback. And so we need to get real comfortable in that environment. And so I kind of set the tone for every meeting that way that I want them to give me feedback on how I'm mentoring them. And in turn, I'm also going to give them feedback on how we're progressing through that project. Um, and so again, I cannot emphasize enough that feedback is not failure. It is just an opportunity for us all to learn. Um, yeah. And so I think that's kind of where I, I judge it to where it's this learning process together and I'm going to critique and support at the same time as, as we go through it. Um, but yeah, I usually let them, I don't know, 
uh, my advisor, Dr. Cunningham, George Cunningham, um, he taught me, you know, it's, it's nice, you need to learn how to struggle first, like you need to learn how to do it on your own. And then, um, and then, you know, once you've struggled, there's a lot of joy in getting through it yourself, but also kind of understanding when, okay, it's time for the advisor to maybe help you at that point. So that's just, you know, you, you figure out that timing, you know, they, they give it in a few goes, they're getting closer, but they need a little bit more guidance. Um, funny story about that. I played golf in college and so George and I went out to the driving range and it was at this time where he was making me learn how to, I think, plot my interactions by hand. And I was pretty irritated at this point because I couldn't get it. And I, I thought I, he should be stepping in, but he wasn't. And so he was, we were on the driving range and he was like cold shanking it. <laughs> and I was, and he was like, Nicole, do you think you could tell me like what I'm doing? And I was like, George, I think it's best to learn through failure right now. So you just give it a few more goes. <laughs> Uh, as you just stop swinging, just set, getting satisfaction from all those cold shanks. <laughs> but joking aside, I do think, you know, understanding, like, let them, there's, there's joy in the struggle, but then knowing when it's time to, you know, provide the, the support that they need to get to the next step. Yeah, I really, I really like that idea of there is great satisfaction of figuring out and solving the problem on your own and being able to do that independently because it's just going to raise your own confidence of I can do this because I, yeah, just working with people, especially like George is a good example, working with someone on a project that you're, that you, they're like an aspirational, like I call them a legacy person, someone that's really, really mm -hmm. good at what they do. You are noticeably trying to learn something from them and you know that you can give them a problem and they'll probably solve it. But there's also something great about solving it and then telling you, hey, hey, this was like this. You did this really well, because mm -hmm. to me, it's like, OK, you know, maybe for this for this very split second, I'm as good as George Cunningham for that millisecond of time. But at least I can say that, yes, I solved that problem. <laughs> exactly. And, and, and you're right. That's where your confidence builds. And that's where, you know, kind of particularly we're talking about working with undergrads or master's students, if you can build their confidence, then it's more likely that they might pursue a PhD moving on versus if they just felt that they were just kind of following their lead the whole time. And yes, this was fun. This was interesting. We saw these insights, but I never really developed the skill sets that I needed to where I feel I can confidently now go and do this for a living. Yeah. Pursue the degree to do it for a living. <laughs> and that's, so what about, is there any students you feel have noticeable potential that they're showing potential great success on this research project that you think maybe they can or would be fitting for a doctoral program. And I say that I'm always of the belief that doctoral program doesn't require a certain amount of intelligence. It probably provides some level of perseverance that it is kind of more of this long race. It's not some feat of strength or anything like that. But do you have students that have noticeable potential? Like that you think, hey, maybe they're for a doc program and do you ever have that conversation with them? I, I have and I do. Um, unfortunately, the ones that are probably gonna be awesome in a doc program, they're also some of our top students. And so they're getting <laughs> top job offers. So yeah. they, you know, different leagues or the USOPC, they're plucking them away from us. But um, so that, that might happen. I will say that I do, some of the things that I, I look for um, which this isn't you know unique to me I'm sure a lot of people look for this or, or those naturally inquisitive folks 
that they just want to learn and they want to do independent, they, you know, they have a question and they, they'll go look it up and they'll try to figure some things out or they continue to have, they just continue to have questions and they want to find those answers. I think that's a, a nice starting point. Um, and then students that can then, that have a lot of ideas. I'm not saying all your ideas have to be great, but you have a lot of ideas that you want to pursue. I think that's helpful. Um, and then just the students that, you know, we collaborate a lot, but it is a very um, isolating path that we've taken a lot of times. You know, when you sit down to write a paper, you're sitting down yourself writing the paper, you're independently doing your research. So just understanding, you know, our students that can thrive in that environment where it's, you know, where you have to keep yourself on track. Because um, not everybody, that's not for everybody, right? Some people want to be in group settings all the time um, and have more of a structure of what their job is and, and where they're going to go. Yeah, for sure. No, that's good. I mean, so Dr. Melton, you've kind of walked us through lots of good guidance points here, but I mean, if you were talking to someone that was just about to start a research project with undergrad or master's students, I mean, what would, what would your advice be for them? Sure. So the, the first thing I would do is just assess their interests and abilities. So where they are and what their abilities are so that you can make sure that you meet them where they're at. It's, it's very easy for us to think, you know, because we're just kind of in this groove of doing projects where we think of ideas and we put them out. Um, but to go back, like you mentioned before, to go back to that 18 to 22 year old or that early 20 grad student and think where you really don't know anything. So put yourself in their shoes to know where they are and what, what this project needs to be. And, and once you do that, it really allows you to determine the scope of the project. And I would say, above anything else, start as small as you can. That was, I would say, the biggest mistake I made early on when trying to do these projects is like, oh, I get so excited, and this is great, and we'll do all this, and really understand your own capacity and understand the capacity of the student and what you can accomplish. And so it's easier, it's, it's much better, I think, to start small and then increase um, versus like having this large thing and then and falling short on that or the student becomes overwhelmed because they can't get all of this done. Um, so those would be kind of like the main thing I would say is that you don't want to give them too much to where they're overwhelmed and they drop off and then they've really learned nothing and it's it's been a waste of their time and it's been a waste of your time at the end. So instead if you can say this is what we'll do, this is the scope and then it becomes much much more enjoyable for both of you. I think that's awesome because yeah, if you start small, if they're really successful, pick it up quickly, then like you said, you can give them like a little bit more and then a little bit more. And then that way they yeah, don't feel overwhelmed on what's going on. And, you know, again, just for folks at different stages of their careers that are doing this and we all have different pressures for tenure and promotion and all of those things. Um, always good to remember that undergrads want and they deserve a lot of feedback but you just need to know, does that fit in with what I can do, right? Do I have the capacity to engage in these projects with a, a population of students that are probably gonna require more feedback than master students, probably not as much as undergrads, right? And then, you know, as you go through that, just when you're trying to think about the projects that you wanna complete and commit to with these students. Yeah, no, that's awesome. So kind of wrapping this up with one fun question is changing topics, thinking of, papers, presentations, grants that you've completed, what's 
within those three categories, what's the work that you're most proud of that you've completed already? It's going to sound weird, but it kind of ties to what I said earlier with George, so the, the study where I had to plot those interactions by hand when that one got published. <laughs> that, was, that was a very proud moment for me when, because <laughs> that project was for a, um, a student research competition. So it had to be me doing it. And I thought I wasn't going to get to submit it because I didn't know I couldn't do the um, analysis that, that was necessary. And then when I finally, after reading like three different books, was able to do it, um, that was just this huge moment of pride for me. And then I really felt like I can learn any type of statistical method now. <laughs> um, and, and that paper is not in one of our top journals at all, but it's still a very, uh, uh, it's like a signaling theory on, on applicants to LGBT inclusive organizations, but it was a very proud moment because it was something that was very early in my career that gave me the confidence to know, oh, I can, I can do this stuff. I can learn. I can write. <laughs> oh man, no, that that is that is awesome. Oh man, I'm sure. <laughs> oh man, I just can't imagine hand plotting anything. This sounds like yeah, and I don't know why he was making me do that. Now there are Excel documents that we or spreadsheets that we can use to do this, but you know that was the time. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Uh, all right. Well, Dr. Melton, thanks for joining us on this. I think this was really informative um, for someone that I have only done one project with a master's student at Texas Tech. It was something that kind of just happened organically. It's not something that I've really built in my classes. I think this has been really informative for me to think about ways that could present my students with an opportunity if an interest kind of piques them for that. So I really want to thank you. There was one thing I forgot to mention that I think is very important. Can I add that yeah, now? Yeah, absolutely. So I would say the the largest, uh, the biggest difference in the past year is that we've created a space for the, all of the students that are working on projects to be together. So we have a weekly lab meeting. So we have the laboratory for inclusion and diversity in sport, LIDS. Um, so, but we bring the students in the lab meeting and we allow, give them the space where they can talk about their questions, um, the projects they're working on, when they need help, when they don't need help. But then also just for the, you know, we have a, a first year student and a second year student in the lab and they're mainly just listening to everything and seeing like if there's some, you know, a coding or a data collection that they might be able to help with, they do. But my thought is, and I'm hoping that this will happen, that by the time they get to be juniors and seniors, they've listened to these meetings for two years to so now they can lead their own projects. Mm. No, that's, no, that is really good. I think that's a good another good example of kind of using a digital platform to allow them to kind of soak up as much information and find out how they can plug in. No, that's yeah. great. And it's also helped our doc students too, because some of our doc students have led projects through the lab where undergrads and master students have helped them collect data or kind of tease out their question in the very early part of the project. So, you know, the more I study diversity and inclusion, I think the more voices and backgrounds that we can get in the table, the better to help us have a better in product. Yeah, for sure. No, that's a great example. But yeah, so kind of hitting on that, Dr. Mellon, thanks for joining us today on this topic. I think this is something that faculty will probably continue to go back and forth and listen to this as they potentially start this process itself. So thank you for joining us. Sure. Thanks for having me. 
So thanks everybody for listening in on this episode of Status Form Management. We hope you'll join us for our next one.